This is a retelling of a retelling. A nation is only as elastic as its symbols. Make it make sense. Make us make sense. Friend, there will be a place where we can start again. My wound, a badge. The land, not sore, but healing. Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, a podcast where we throw a magic key into a river and arrive back home to find it waiting for us on the mantelpiece. We've assembled some of the finest poets the UK has to offer and asked them to rewrite the myths, legends and fairy stories they want to pass down the generations, stories they want to preserve for whatever future comes next. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and today I have the infinite pleasure of being joined by Jamie Hale and Mumtaza Mehri. Hello, guys. Hi. Hello. Jamie Hale is a poet, performer, and multidisciplinary creative. Their work explores interrelationships between embodiment, disability, deviance, power, and nature. They've been published in the Rialto and Magma and performed their poetry at the Southbank Centre, Tate Modern, and Barbican Centre which featured their solo show, Not Dying, in 2019. Jamie curates Cryptic, a deaf and disabled artist development programme and showcase, and recently won the Evening Standard Future Theatre Award for directing and theatre making. Their first pamphlet, Shield, was published by Verve in January of this year. Mumtaza Mehri is a poet and independent researcher. Her work has appeared in Granta, Art Forum, The Guardian, Bomb Magazine and Real Life Mag. She's the former Young People's Poet Laureate for London and columnist-in-residence at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art's Open Space. Her latest pamphlet, Doing the Most with the Least, was published in 2019. And first up, we have Jamie. Now, what story have you decided to retell for us? I decided to retell a series of myths from the Arthurian canon. Mm. I didn't want to be pinned down to an accurate retelling of a single myth when there have been so many beautiful versions. So instead, I decided to take aspects or sections of a series of different myths and kind of brought them into the structure of a mythic journey so that we follow this journey, but through a series of different characters at different time points in history. I was interested in the idea in Arthurian legend that the king under the hill will waken at a time of crisis and thought about how different characters from the myths can be situated at different points of crisis. That is beautiful but I'd love to hear it in your own time. Guinevere, Hastings, 1066. He called me long-legged like a statue and I was swept a wave carved stone, a natural body of legs, and we were young and beautiful, then also married. So easy to fall in love, so hard to stay. But I did my weighty duty. If this duty is a woman's work, then Arthur demands his table laid, the drunken sot, his glass half full, ballistic, bombastic, downplaying all the losses, dropping his archers on maps and planning corpses, as if like Tostig, like Hadrada, the Normans would be next to flee his feared, his housecarls, his weakened forces. At night, 
he sobs. Lance called me long-legged, like a horse, and him, the fabled fighter, my knight. I leapt, as if diving into battle or fleeing from the hunt. An easy fuck. No more the solid weight of stone, the holding, the frozen beauty, and I not steady yet, still bounding. He saw me, long-legged, and marked me with the will to move. And Arthur, that old drunk, that hero lost inside his ale, that gorgeous man, that anxious child, the sword, still too long and all too weighty, the flighty soldier, all the men I loved and lost and loved again, but him and Lance, his almost brother, my almost man, the bitter I always knew, the wit, the misery, hate turned to poison and ate, the winter's cold, the outside's biting air, strength captivated, hardened, but he melted me to life. Do I run to him, fleeing, freedom, the first air I breathe as mine? Not I. I know a man. I speak the Welsh of my mother's family. I can ride a horse with grace. So I will go deep behind the lines and find my freedom on the ground where I was born. I owe them nothing. And myself? I owe myself the world. So I will leave. Percival. A.M. 1665. I knew that I was fleeing something gruesome, London pestilent, and I had a mission shaped of fear, and after me the chains of people flood, but sucking at the blood of all the stragglers, postulous, postules all black and bloated, and after them came death. Not slick and slender swish, dark cloak and scythe, but the scrim of filthy oil on water, plague sucking at the light. And with me, a severed head, wrapped in layers of cloth, a lance, blood-shocked, blood-tipped, and wet with fleas, floating, carrying its deathly self, as if I were not quite real. So I crossed the peaks alone, great shining hills, and the world spread out below. I looked back at that scrim of oily water, coating empty fields behind me, seeping through. I settled down towards Aeum, my severed head, my lance, my trail of death, my tiny village, my people, awaiting my arrival, unknowing, so self-sacrificing and small. Galahout, Los Angeles, 1985. And there, in the valley of death, in the forsaken Sodom of my people, the curse of our salt-slicked pillars, I learned that all there is, is love, alone. And I, the luckiest still alive to have felt this now, drenched, soaked in the light, him, 
Lance, his striking flesh, his bitter face, his inner warmth. I always knew myself second to none but her, his blazing desire for Guinevere, and me, his reckless poison. And I, young, eager, blooming in his love, I blossomed from his fierceness. These great wounds in the richest reds, roses blotted in blood and buried deep beneath my skin. I learned what it is to love my brother, to nurse an endless cough late at night, to gaze into the anxious eyes of my friends and be a stranger. In those yearning moments, my lungs too, growing new my cystis, my endless pills, my back trim, my desire to be alive. I learned that I had only love and that my brothers were all my people. There, after sickness swept New York, Fire Island, men in the fast lane, it came for us, our saunas, our white picket houses, our sense of desire. My loves, if this is it for our people, then please may some man, some time far in the future, holding hands with another like him, like Lance and I, or all our brothers, see my grassy grave and say, there went men like us and love. Or is the future barren as the present, deep and empty, born with grace and left by death? Gawain, Teufelsberg, 1989. If I had thought I had my honour, mine, it wasn't much. I crossed the greying border, cycled, my papers clear. I, just one of many men, moving steadily past the gate between one Berlin and the other, somehow alike and yet unalike. A different tone to the grey paved streets, both the same and subtly different. That fear each time of betrayal catching at me, the guards with guns, this great game centred on one crossing of the line between the sides, between the spies. If I thought I had my honour, then one drink fewer, one lady fewer, one alluring temptation to blurt my secrets fewer. When put to the test, sir, I know I failed. Not for thumbscrews or for torture. I would carry those alone and laugh at pain and death. But for these eyes that spoke and softness. I, too long a lonely soldier, had thought my resistance to be stronger. But here, in this second reigning city, seen and watched by life itself. Sir, I gave her my address. She was young, vivacious. I refused to fuck, refused to kiss, kept my shining honour unimpeached. And then she asked, just to write a letter, 
and I agreed. No secret, I know, that I was there. This dance of spies, we see each other, play the same long game, the cards, the same green papers. No secret, my address. They watch my flat at night, but sir, I failed for the temptation to feel desired and alive. Fisher King, Frensham, 2120. This boat replaced my legs long ago. I never leave the water now, though my oars are green with algae and snare slowly through the sludge. The fish I catch and eat, still raw and wriggling, are long and thin, more fragile bone than flesh. I choose to stay amidst the water, not return to shore. My wound, my body, my failing land, the acid rain has drenched the trees and lakes. I will not be healed. My legs, my wound. Watch me turn away, Percival. His lance can make whole only me, but I am as hurt as the land is hurting, and I would rather die as the land itself is dying. But come the grail to trade for the fairy's stolen cauldron, and then its devastation shall be healed. I shall stay like this, by choice, but not barren, bear daughters from my womb, my hidden wound, and lie offshore. And over days, the land itself regrows, refreshes. Friend, there will be a place where we can start again. My wound, a badge. The land, not sore, but healing. Our love, not sore, but healing. Please, bring only the Holy Grail and yourself. Please come to me alone and let us renew the world. What an absolutely gorgeous reading. Thank you. I'm so curious as to what drew you to these particular stories or these particular figures in all of the wild sprawling pantheon that is the Arthurian legends? I think I wanted complex characters. So whether that was ones that had been told and retold in many different ways, or whether that was ones that kind of fitted with the interests I had and the stories I wanted to tell. I struggled a bit with the fact that the Arthurian legends are not exactly replete with women um, and I didn't want to be telling stories that were entirely men and I feel like Guinevere is such an overlooked character because she's told in so many different ways you know, from the from the downtrodden wife to the rebellious woman mm. and I wanted to ask what it would be if she was going to shape her own myth and decide that actually 
neither Arthur nor Lancelot were what she wanted and she wanted to find herself so that began my exploration of kind of the hero's journey the descent the leaving and then I liked Percival because of all of the kind of religious and holy associations and for Guinevere taking her to the Battle of Hastings was an interesting place because it was a loss after a series of wins and I thought about that moment of loss as a chance for her to leave and then for Percival with his kind of holy associations I wanted to ask what it would be if he was the most destructive force and the story of the plague village of Aeum which had some bales of cloth with plague carrying fleas delivered and when they discovered the black plague in the village they completely shut themselves off and refused to let anyone enter or leave and a huge proportion of the residents died but they didn't transmit the plague further so I thought about Percival and the idea that in attempting to do something good one can instead be such a destructive force and Galahad was a real desire to bring in some of the queer narratives that come into Arthurian legend particularly the associations between Galahad and Lancelot and for me some of that was very much inspired by a book called Love Alone by Paul Manette which explored living in the early years of the AIDS crisis and losing one's partner and I thought about how young people were I think I think with this pandemic it's really made me realize how young we all are that I lost my father and I still feel like a child again and it really I was thinking about how young so many of the people that died in all of these narratives were and indeed how young the characters in Arthurian legend were and so for me that was very much about that acknowledgement of youth and death and mortality and that love is ultimately all that matters. Hmm. Could you tell me a little bit more about the ending that that the Fisher King who you place at a sort of nebulous possible end of the world possible moment of ecological healing? I think the story of the Fisher King is the one that I divorced most from the original myth um, I was interested in the Fisher King because they're described as having a wound to the thigh in lots of different myths, which is often interpreted by scholars now as a genital wound. Mm. Um, and the Fisher King is described as barren. And I thought about what it is to, as somebody who is female assigned and lives in a kind of nebulously man-gendered space for lack of better language because language fails I wanted to see people like myself and disabled bodies like my own reflected mm. and I didn't want that to be tragic so for me the Fisher King's decision to stay in the boat was an active choice that they had chosen to live in in that world that healing wasn't what they desired unless it was healing the world I liked the idea of this almost mother figure emerging from the myth of the Fisher King 
you're kind of renewing the world, bearing daughters, letting the land refresh and come back. There's a myth about a fairy's stolen cauldron in Frenchham where this is set. So I thought about the cauldron and the grail, and it just felt like a very appropriate place to set that last myth. So I think overall I was going for a kind of queering and cripping of Arthurian myth in many ways. It's, yeah, it's completely haunting in its sort of multifaceted take on these moments of crisis. And what strikes me most of all is the sort of absence, the notable absence of this legendary king who will come. There's no messianic figure hoving towards us over the horizon. We're just sort of left without a sense that there is someone coming to save us. What happens when you abstract Arthur from the myths, I think, was at the heart of what I was trying to do. And by abstracting him, I think I was able to explore the other stories more. Gawain was very much about that kind of Arthurian concept of honour and manhood Mm. and about the idea that even somebody who prides themselves on meeting these masculine ideas of honour also has that softness and emotional need and I wanted all of the characters I explored to have those different sides the softness the grace I think. Mumtaza how do you respond to this kind of Arthurian legend without Arthur this sort of time traveling mythical journey that Jamie's brought us along on? When I was sort of editing and working with my own poems, I think I was really inspired by James's um, approach of decentering the figure that we would perhaps like most associated with a particular myth, right? Or finding a different sort of entry point. And that for me was really generative because what it allowed for me to try and do in my own work was to track it or sort of track the journey of a myth and its metamorphosis and how the figure itself or the key figures can be these these sort of murky murky objects of symbolism and how they're read perhaps today is not necessarily how they were first um, encountered in their various sort of, um, in their various sort of, incarnations um and me for me particularly that was really pertinent as I was working with um the mythology of like Gog and Magog which is something that you know it has its origins in Abrahamic texts even though in many ways it predates the biblical and Talmudic and Quranic incarnations but also this is you know it's it's a mythology that has so many different variations and echoes and reverberations throughout different cultures and yeah and for me it was just like trying to work against this um this notion of a, like you said, a messianic or perhaps a centralised figure and trying to follow that sort of disaggregation of mythology that's so, that's such a part of myths, really. Fabulous. And actually, at that moment, I would love to go over to your poem. Could you tell us just a little bit more about Gog and Magog for people who might not be familiar? Well, um, the figures of Gog and Magog are mostly um, depicted and understood as giants or monstrous figures. And I wanted to sort of 
think through the idea of the end of the world um, through Gog and Magog and their history throughout, you know, um, Abrahamic texts and also various different traditions and how they've been associated with um, impending Armageddon, um, civilizational collapse, um, invading hordes and just generalized total destruction. Um, so it's a very literal understanding of the end of the world. But in many ways, Welsh and English mythology subverts that greatly because Gog and Magog are these ferocious giants that are tamed by Brutus of Troy, who is um, the first king of Britain. Mm. And they are now chained, or they're chained to um, what's now called uh, Guildhall. And the mascots are still there, actually. And they were supposed to be um, understood as guarding the city of London, um, where the buildings still bear the emblems today. So I was interested, again, in tracking the movement of these figures and the way they transform from these um, symbols of barbarian Eastern hordes to these very like localized guardians and mascots of capital and crown. Um, and I wanted to explore also what other monsters or monstrous figures they may have been replaced by. So um, the end of all of that deliberation uh, resulted in a poem. <laughs> and um, yeah, the poem is called a portfolio of investment. Gog, prelude. How do you tame a monster? Begin with its hoisted shoulders. Begin with the mutiny of daughters on far-flung shores. Each shuns the husband picked out for her, prefers a monster of her own choosing. The sea has a special disregard for origin stories. It teaches rebellion to 33 sisters. I want to be as indiscriminately free as the sea, as contemptuous of jurisdiction. The old world churns in the belly of the new one. The old refuses to die quietly, surrenders itself to the mercurial tide of interpretation, to what we want it to be. This is a retelling of a retelling. The sisters are punished their changeling children thrown into the waters. Exile is the fate of a surviving pair. Brutus births Britain, erects a city of tessellated arteries and thoroughfares, chains the straggling monsters. Like all kings, he will not live to witness his own irrelevance. Babylon rules the waves. Troy, Tenduk, Dariel, Derbent, the names change, mutate. The fortified gates remain. Iron and molten copper is the bedrock of our separation. There must always be a defined outsider, a redefined insider. Barbarians circle the hearth, scuff their muddy shoes against the walls of our fortress. If we let them, they will stain Europa's white shawls. Britannia redacted, reduxed, irreducible to officiated pride or the private anguish of its casualties. I am another casualty, just like everybody else. I swallow contradictions with my morning glass of orange juice. Claim the sunrise as metronome. Terry and Julie's bloated river is best seen from the deck of a hired private boat. I am aware of the moneyed flow coursing through the heart's impoverished provinces. Everything is born slippery. Everyone is made slippery, like the detours of a maddening storyteller.
Shehrazad of the Square Mile narrates her journey to the co-op. Inside tunnels, strangers head nod greetings. School children race downhill towards their greasy kingdom of chicken shops, shoulder nervous joggers. Katabasis is a group activity. To survive the city is to live as persistently as a myth, to be biblical with your ambitions, be both giant and stone. The veil of indifference is artificial. The distance is not. We are inheritors of anxious speculation, of eschatological crisis. Awash with the brine of oily commerce, we scrape the evidence of loss from our faces. Look up. See who guards the dominions of discontent. See who defends the city's gated purity. See who is protecting us from ourselves. Magog, denude. Even giants can be domesticated, can be tethered to civic delusions. Nightmares are endlessly adaptable. Draft them into our carousel of obsessions, douse them in Plymouthian waters, and christen them with shinier titles. I watch British Pathé newsreels to stitch together my own dislocation. I keep the sound off. A man tenderly scrubs a monster's face, wipes the unblinking folds of a stone eye duct. Locals lift the giants above their heads, unafraid of yawning jaws and jagged white cliffs. Gargoyles as gatekeepers of Guildhall, of fortune, of the favoured. The city needs its henchmen, needs those willing to do its dirty work while keeping its face clean. A nation is only as elastic as its symbols. Make it make sense, make us make sense. Give us the flesh of coherence a new name by which we may know ourselves, by which we may know who we are not. Gift us with a new demonology of skyscrapers and high-rise development, towering over the heads of wary commuters. Beasts find new homes on parade floats, processions, pavilions. The dog-faced savages of yesterday's fables become homeland mascots, leashed, bloodless effigies. Business casual, anointed by lords and their ladies, they breathe new life into the strained gasps of post-industrial heartbreak. We all have a part to play. Public pageantry sanctifies wounds we will never admit to. I can't hear you over the sound of your family crest. It's so violently purple. Dragons and lions are theatrically foreign. If we didn't throw our heads back and laugh, we would cry. We should be ashamed, but shame is stubbornly difficult to market. Remember the good old days, when monsters were monstrous elsewhere. Now, babbling hordes at the door feast on our inconsistencies. They cannot be corrected into respectable speech, into wickerwork validation. We watch them on screens, trade horned hearsay, their infamy carried through scriptures of ink and animal hide, a nomadic nomenclature of shivering tents and sleeping bags. They have no allegiances, which makes them careless distributors of insecurity. Alexander's gates are strewn with empty crisp packets. The walls we relied on are crumbling. 
we know who to blame. Dilettante contaminators of the stories we are still trying to agree on. They puncture our mask of consensus. Closer and closer they spill and spread, reach the sodden hems of our doormats. We hear their rasping, their furry tongues licking the handle. How to welcome what has never left, what was always there. Every legend is a loan word. Every nightmare is translatable. The difference is in the telling, in the teller. That was absolutely beautiful. Thank you. I'm so intrigued by the line, nightmares are endlessly adaptable. It sort of brings to mind what you were saying just before about the metamorphosis of these myths and I guess how useful and efficient really monsters can be in the stories that we tell ourselves, both mythical and kind of more prosaic. I mean, I was struck by... um the transformation of, of, of a symbol or a myth or the many different ways in which it can be utilised. And with Gog and Magog, particularly in English and wealth mythology, the myth takes on this entirely different nationalistic character, which is missing from many of its interpretations in um, not just the biblical sense, but also in, that you find in Persian and um, Arabic contexts, um, that which were particularly quite formative for me because I used to have this, um, there was this big compendium, this like massive book that I used to read a lot growing up um, and it was called Al-Mustadrif and it was like this compendium of legends and stories and fables and, and I think it was written in the 14th century and I remember reading that and leafing through that when I was a, a kid and it had sections and everything. It was like, okay, mermaids and ghosts and all sorts of different, you know, um, collected legends of the time itself and um, one entire section of it was actually dedicated to Gog and Magog. So I knew that there was this like longer, much more entangled history. But then when I was thinking about the history of Gog and Magog, the Champions of London, which is a work of historical fiction written by um, the Scottish novelist John Gull um, that was published in 1819, and works like that, which were very much resituating this myth within the context of the Industrial Revolution, the context of London as this um, space for hyper-accelerated movement of finance capital, and how that also relates to just myself, like, as just like a Londoner, never really looking up to see the emblems mm. in like Guildhall and around those same sort of spaces and knowing that they were intimately connected to these figures that I would never really have associated with, you know, the foundational myths of London and Britain. So I think this was a real, you know, writing this poem was like a real journey in, in itself because I didn't think that the myth lived so persistently within spaces that I was familiar with and that it had this various um, multiple lives and afterlives. So, yeah, I mean, that's... And I was, you know, very much struck by that and that's how I came to trying to tackle the idea of the myth as this constantly reinterpreted but also translatable mm. phenomenon. Yeah, in the first part you talk about Europa mm -hmm. and Britannia as sort of mythic figures in themselves mm -hmm. which I was so fascinated by. Mm -hmm. Yeah I mean I was just trying to draw from um, again this vast inventory 
of symbols and figures. And um, I mean, the longer version of all this or sort of like the initial drafts that I had, um, we're trying to, I think, incorporate a bit too much because again, with Gog and Magog, you know, we can, you know, we can also think about how they're stand-ins for um, various civilizational anxieties around, you know, invading or the impending invasion of like barbarians or Mongols or Tatars or Muslim hordes and how that very much is related to um, this idea of, you know, Alexander, the Greco-Roman figure that erects these um, massive gates and those gates keep them out. Um, but there's also always this looming threat of penetration, right? Mm. Um, and that's something that I found very interesting. So how do these figures then become mascots? How do they then become, you know, defanged? You know, these kind of, um, yeah, these, these figures of, of um, celebration, you know? I mean, and I was watching these reels of um, Londoners, you know, in the 1950s, just like having these, hoisting these effigies up in the air and sort of like walking in these processions. Wow. And it was really interesting to see, yeah, the, the, the transformation of Gog and Magog into, um, I guess, you know, London's very own. I'm curious as to sort of why these figures appeal to you as ways of talking about that tension between sort of mm. crisis and apocalypse and the ways in which these myths become normalized because there's almost a sense of like possibility and potential as well as a sense of like an impending doom I don't know if that's just me because I really like the idea that there are sort of monsters under the city of London that are about to break out at any time I mean I think I think um for me I was really interested in anything that sort of represents this idea of the great unknown right and even you know it's it's a matter of speculation amongst like researchers mm. and 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 historians how you know Gog and Magog in many ways represent the lack of knowledge that was available at the time of the construction of some of these myths or actually I wouldn't say the construction but perhaps you know the entrenchment of some of these myths into sort of the European understandings because it really revealed a lack of knowledge about interior Asia right mm. or the interiors and, and the spaces within Asia where these myths were coming from so therefore it, it took on all these various different interpretations about who it could be where they were coming from and you know there's many people who contributed you know Marco Polo contributed to some of the entrenchment <laughs> of the myths you know um, in his own accounts of his travels but I think for me I, I think I'm always really interested in how people come to understand the apocalypse, right? Or this idea of a coming apocalypse. And to condense them into these two figures and to see that, that process through so many cultures, I think is really interesting, this whole transcultural element of, 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 of a myth. But also just in terms of my own sort of personal understanding, I think I used to be the kind of person who is obsessed with like religious interpretations of the apocalypse. So I just like find it really fun and be like, okay, so this is how the world ends. But maybe I was a really weird, morose teenager, but I found that like super interesting to be like, okay, what are the signs? Let's watch out for the signs. Okay. These are the minor signs. These are the major signs, that kind of thing. Um, because in many ways, what people think about the end of the world reveals a lot about how they see the world as it is right now. Mm. Um, mm. So for me, I wanted to draw upon figures that had interested me for a very long time, like since childhood, really. Um, yeah. And Jamie, you write about sort of the end of the world or like these ends of the world, these crises are sort of multiple unfolding things that keep repeating and echoing down history, which sort of 
I don't know, resonates so much with what Montaza is is talking about in the way in which these myths mutate. I found it really fascinating when I started reading reading Montaza's work because in many ways it felt like she had seen where I was going and then gone a step further in a way I found fascinating in terms of this kind of I'd moved through time in a defined way and Montaza had just moved away from time and to explore what time is rather than to explore what it is to be in a time. I had kind of moved Arthur out of the centre of the myths and Montaza had moved Gog and Magog right to the very edges. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting seeing all of the possibilities that could be done when you take this incredible, incredible approach to decentering that goes far beyond just moving Arthur out the way and into moving the whole myth out the way, which gave, I think, an awful lot of creative positivity, creative possibility, perhaps. Um, Montaza writes, everything is born slippery. Everyone is made slippery, like the detours of a maddening storyteller. And this felt like that slippery, maddening storyteller where you think you've got a grip on part of it and then something else comes along Mm -hmm. and it all just kind of coheres into this apocalyptic hole. I think given the times we're living in, it's no surprise that we both took approaches that took kind of apocalyptic and world-ending myths. But I really enjoyed the way that it moved between the kind of biblical with your ambitions to the the tiny, a man tenderly scrubs a monster's face. Again, it's this slipperiness, it's this shift in size between one thing and another that happens almost without you knowing it so that you can drift between this great overview and these tiny details, which I just found fascinating. And if the very beginning is a very good place to start, the very end of the world is where we shall have to leave it for this week so thank you so much to you both Jamie Hale and Mumtaza Mehri it's been beyond a pleasure talking to you about Arthurian heroes and quasi-Abrahamic portents of doom this has been Bedtime Stories for the End of the World I've been your host Eleanor Penny and until next time sweet dreams and thanks for listening This has been Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. Our project producer is Tom McAndrew and our podcast producer is Maya Bosworth. This project is funded by Arts Council England and supported by the good folks at Spread the Word. We have a book out also entitled Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. It's illustrated by the artist Inquisitive and published by Studio Press. To get your copy, you can go to our website, endoftheworldpodcast.com. There you can also explore all our previous episodes and find out more about our writers and their stories. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Goodbye World Pod.